0: Technology is advancing at pace across the energy sector. As we progress towards net zero, we want you to stay ahead of the conversation. Welcome to the Net Zero Technology Centre's podcast series, Transition Talks, where we will be joined by industry experts at the forefront of the energy transition as we examine the challenge and explore the solutions. So Myrtle, your days are really complex and busy and challenging. What really gives you the drive and the passion to come in every day and try and solve really complex and hard problems?
1: It's a very interesting thing. On a daily basis, I'm not thinking about it, but sometimes when I, maybe I'm on holiday, I think about it because I want to get back to work. I definitely believe in the mission. So I'm one of the people who believes that we can do something about climate change and that with action we can actually make a difference. I'm not saying whether or not it's gonna completely alleviate it, but I do believe we can make a difference and I think we've got an obligation to do so. And I think in particular here at NZTC, dealing in technology, I like technology, I've worked with in engineering and technology all my life, is where I think I can make a difference because I can use all the experience I've got to date to do something. And I think that can technology make a difference Absolutely. I mean, you know, sometimes technology makes a difference when we don't expect it to. I remember when I bought my first iPad, I bought it because I not liked what it looked like, but it did nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we're ordering from the supermarket, you know, we're getting our boarding passes. What aren't we doing with our electronics now? So for me, technology can make a difference. And probably technology can make a difference, which even right now we can't envisage because that's the nature of disruptive technology.
0: Yeah, it has all sorts of unintended applications. Absolutely. Sometimes you you invent something, you think, oh, it's going to be great for X. Meanwhile, no, no one wants to use it for that. They want to use it for something else. Absolutely. So just to kind of like um, give us a bit of perspective, at the Net Zero Technology Centre, we are a kind of mission-focused organisation. We have three really strong programmes that we are running. We've got an Emissions Reduction Programme. We've got an Energy Systems Integration Programme, which is hugely exciting about renewables and hydrogen and offshore wind and oil and gas. And uh, we've got the Data Programme, Offshore Energy 4.0. So you were kind of instrumental in helping to devise that approach. Why did you come to that kind of perspective? What made you think that you know, simplifying things into those three core areas would be effective.
1: Yeah. So it's a very interesting question in retrospect, because I don't know if it was that deliberate, but definitely, you know, we had seven solution centres and one of them was net zero. But of course, the conversation was always about net zero and everything else that we were doing. But to some extent, it really goes back to if we divide things too much and have very many parts, it's really difficult to actually solve a problem. And actually, you know, this comes to this issue about systems thinking. And, you know, with systems thinking, what we're trying to do is to take a very complex issue and rather than solve it in very small parts is to look at the whole picture rather than the very small picture, look at the interdependencies and just try and solve things in a a bigger, more holistic way. And when you do that, you find that you're able to address very complex Issues and actually get outcomes, which if you've got a smaller part, you just can't get to. Uh, And how I'd like to say this is if you just look at what we're doing with energy overall, you've got what the individual needs to do, you've got what society needs to do, and which, you know, uh, an individual couldn't achieve on their own. And you've got the needs in terms of what we need, but then what are the means that we have? So, you know, here in the UK, you know, if we want renewables, we've got to be focusing on wind as a means rather than uh, solar, for example. And then you do need to look at the the part. So, of course, you need to build, uh, have projects which are actually giving you the renewables or giving you the CCUS or reducing emissions, but you need to have the whole, you need to have the market, a grid to take this to, to customers. So systems thinking is about making sure that you're not just thinking about your individual bit. And I'd say that's the same when we're looking at how we're going to get to net zero across the world, that, you know, all the countries can do it and then it adds up. But inevitably, there's all the stuff that's going on in the oceans and aviation. So we do need a systems approach for that. And we need to also recognise that some people might overshoot net zero and others may struggle. But for the planet, that still adds up to the same thing.
0: Yeah, I like the way that you explain that. But I think there's always a tension between you know, when you face a big complex problem, it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. You know, So systems thinking in itself is an overwhelming perspective because it's so many different variables. But what you've done in the centre and the team have done with the three core programmes, it kind of gives it a handle, I think, which makes it easier to deal with because you've broken it down into components, really, haven't yeah, you? Yeah,
1: yeah, but not too many. And I think the other thing just to note is it's, you also have different stakeholders. And when you're interacting with academia and industry, you know, you have to interact with them on a, a topic or um, something that they also have as part of their game plan. And so you do have to have some way of parsing that. So, you know, if you are talking about emissions reduction offshore, that would be a different population to the cohort that would be talking about say maybe building a new wind farm now increasingly not maybe so but certainly a year or two but certainly you do need to do that and the companies that are giving us the solutions on big data etc are sometimes independent of all of these sectors and we need to really be working with them because they can give us really great answers to some of our problems
0: yeah and so i'm I'm interested what you said there about not It's not always so that the floating wind, for example, developers are different to oil and gas. Now we're seeing that convergence Mm -hmm. of companies and technologies and really kind of coming together of an industry. And I guess that plays to what you were saying about systems thinking as well. So do you think that the energy businesses themselves are looking at it in a more holistic manner than they used to?
1: Yeah. Well, certainly some of them are. I think some of them are looking at from their companies being energy. But like anything, their companies are energy, but then the business units are, are split. And that may be for good reasons. There's the expertise, there's the regulatory arrangement, there's the scale, there's the risk. And so what you'll find is that at the top level where you're dealing with, uh, this is what we want for the company in 2050, that you'll get that integrated approach, thinking about the various streams and the amount of money that's needed to be spent. And what we're hoping is that money will be going from current energy flows, which is mainly from oil and gas, over to investment in things such as wind farms and hydrogen. And that happens at top level. But I think if you went in most companies, you'd still see if you were working on an offshore oil and gas asset, that's what you'd be doing. And you'd be trying to make sure that it was as efficient and safe as possible and looking for technology to make sure you had as the minimum amount of emissions from that. Whereas if you're working on a big wind project, then that would look different. You'd have slightly different stakeholders and you'd be dealing with a completely different regulatory regime and timing for that project. So again, you know, you, you do need to solve the problems But I think in terms of the controlling minds for companies, they need an integrated approach.
0: Yeah, and it seems as if the whole kind of perception in the public sphere is is interesting as well, because there are some voices out there who say that we have to flip a switch and move quickly from one way of producing energy, i.e. oil and gas, to a completely renewable setup. But this integrated approach seems to be the way that things are actually happening. Mm -hmm. What's your perspective on that?
1: So it definitely is a transition. And we know because, you know, if we could transition today, we probably would, but we can't because it takes time to build. And I think this is a frustration for many people. You know, a typical oil and gas facility, when I used to do development engineering, from the first thought that I actually would like to go and work in that basin to the first barrel that you got of anything, could be as much as 10 years. So when we're now looking at some of the very complex, big replacement projects, people are expecting a much shorter period. It was always a long game in energy when you're spending billions and delivering at scale. And that's what people are seeing. And on top of that, we've got this big push with new technology. So I think for those who are looking in, it looks slow and like no one's doing it. From where I sit, where I'm seeing academics with the new ideas uh, the invention in terms of what we could be doing i'm seeing developers with the new innovation that they've done they've taken something and changed it and it it actually operates in a new way i'm seeing technology that's going to make a difference so it's absolutely natural for me to be more optimistic that things are going on because i'm sitting right at the front end but i imagine for those who are sitting waiting for the hydrogen in their home so that they don't have to use fossil fuels, it seems like a long path.
0: It does, doesn't it? That's one of the criticisms I think the industry's had, is that we talk an awful lot about hydrogen and carbon capture and storage. But where are the big projects? Mm -hmm. And there are projects going on, but maybe not at the scale and the impact that people would expect to Mm -hmm. see in making a transition to Mm -hmm. that kind of economy. But... Do you feel, I mean, you said you're an optimist. Or do you feel that we probably will wake up one morning and realise that we're almost there in terms of investment that's going into these things? Can you see that happening, that investment and that desire to do that?
1: So, look, I think that there's no good reason for people not to want to get to net zero by 2050. I see there could be a lot of headwinds that could take us off, and we've seen some of them over the last couple of years, you know, the pandemic, you know, what we're doing, You know, uh, now we've got, uh, well, we always had war, but now we've got war a bit closer. Perhaps we see that it could be more disruptive and kind of explains why other countries were, you know, what do I solve first? So I think at the moment, I think we can get to 2050 and net zero, but there'd have to be a lot of things that are happening differently. And I think it's a case of we're going along and then we're going to have to make some kind of leap like snakes and ladders. We're going up. We're going to need to find a ladder, which gives us something very disruptive or some kind of major thing that the countries do together, which just gives us that acceleration. Because at the moment, all I see is the snakes where we get pandemic and you go back. We've got war. We go back. So we need some more ladders in order to get there, because at the moment, if you looked at it, we would be behind. And to be fair, you know, even to get to 2050, we are still going to see some climate change. And at some point we'll be saying, if it's say 0.6 for the UK, what do we need to do differently in terms of mitigation? But, you know, what we want to do is to be spending most of our time in making sure that doesn't happen. But we still, as I said, more ladders and less snakes is what we need in this.
0: Yeah, but I guess I'll come back to the question. I'm trying to articulate it a different differently. Are you seeing the pace of change starting to ramp up?
1: Absolutely, I mean, you know I joined uh n z t c two and a half years ago, and uh I could almost say that hardly any of the majors that I saw had a very big brief around this, and since then, in fact, I think when I joined it was about the time that b p came out with their new strategy, I think absolutely uh the pace of change, but as with acceleration, I mean you can be accelerating fast, but of course, it does take time. You know, and you gain that momentum over time. And I think the problem for us is whether or not the ambitions that we have in the short term are going to be met. And if they're not met, how do we change the medium term plan to accommodate that? And that's probably where we are at the moment.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're an engineer and a thinker and um, you know, obviously you're very focused on the technology side of the equation. But I'd like to change tack a little okay. bit and ask you about the social science side of Puzzle because yeah. I know you've got some opinions on that as well. So if if you could wave a magic wand and say, right, we, we should be tackling X, Y, and Z. That's soft problems, that are easy to invest in, easy to solve. We could do it quickly. We'd make a major impact mm-hmm. on emissions generally in society. What kind of areas would you point to?
1: So definitely I think that the area around what does the individual do? So this, again, systems thinking, what does society do, which is what we're really pushing with the government. But do individuals know what they need to do and sufficient that we can actually do that? And I would say that not really, because to some extent, the argument has got polarised that it's someone's fault and hence someone else needs to do it. But in reality, when you start looking at the actual impacts that are happening, it's going to be individuals Who are going to make a difference. So things such as um, if we've got green energy, we don't want to just use an infinite amount because that would consume everything. There's still consumption going on. We still need batteries. We still need materials. We have to consume less. So this issue about how we do these things efficiently, waste less circular economy becomes more important. Otherwise, we're just going to make another problem. So for me, I would like to see not individuals doing more, but knowing more, because I think this fight over the hearts and minds has become such that it's someone else's fault when we need to say, others need to do it, but what is my job? So that we all have something to do. So I think that's really important that the individual contribution is well known and accepted. I feel that the other side, that the global accord that is going to be needed so that You know, three countries or fifty countries get to net zero, and the others don't, and then actually we still end up with a problem that needs to be addressed, and that will take probably the biggest amount of effort because we've never really done things on a global basis. I mean, we're probably spending far more trying to escape the planet than we are to making the accords with the rest of our brethren around the planet. You know, if you think about the billions that we're spending, you know, can we get a colony on Mars? Well, maybe. But, you know, if you think about terraforming Mars and thinking about the terraforming that we need to do here by just a few degrees and it's terrible and difficult, you know, what are we trying to do? So for me, there is a global accord that's required. And without that, then with all the efforts we do, we might miss everything. Yeah.
0: I can see the, the tension there, you know, because I think as an individual sometimes you feel a little bit overwhelmed because you're just a small, tiny little piece in the puzzle. So, you know, what difference will it make if I stop eating meat or insulate my home or get an electric vehicle? Probably very little, but, you know, obviously every, every activity does count.
1: Yeah, it all adds up.
0: Yeah, it all adds up. So I guess coming back to the technology side of things, though, because that's where, that's where you play every day. That's your strength. What are the core problems that you think we still need to really put our shoulders to tackle to make progress on? If you had to think about things like, I don't know, alternative fuels or storage for CO2, or where do you think it's super important that we should be thinking about
1: solving the issue? So I think, um, look, there's there's a lot of problems because this is an entire industrial revolution. So it's difficult to, to point to one. But I think the point to the one that people will be closest to is, you know, I'm not sure that we're on top of how we're going to get all this electricity to everyone. It's just not clear to me that that is where we are. I think we know that we need it and that we're certainly, you know, here at NZTC, we're pushing in terms of, you know, the floating wind. But I'm not so sure that even if we did electrify and we had these gigawatts, how do we get that into grid to people? You know, what's going on around that technology? and infrastructure? And do we need to invest in different or more disruptive technologies such as you know wireless transfer of power? I mean, think about that. Then you could overcome the issue Mm. that we've got um, old infrastructure, which some countries won't have because they don't have that infrastructure. So very important that we start looking at some of these other solutions. And the solutions to some of these um, in what I'd call some of the other countries may be useful. So if you take what happened with phones that the fact that some of the countries that hadn't developed didn't have all these lines etc was really useful when they actually started using mobile phones that's why it took off mm-hmm. and had far more much uh or higher adoption and far more quickly and i think that there may be some things we can be learning from not having to work within the constraints of our hundred year infrastructure so we can skip a development step yes Yeah, by learning about something different and not saying it all has to go through this infrastructure. So there's a bit more thinking that we need to do. I'd say as well that, you know, we have the ideas about how to get to net zero. I'm not sure that we've resolved how much we're going to consume to do that and whether or not that's reasonable and whether or not the resources actually exist to do that. And aren't we just going to fight over those resources to get this technology going? So, I mean, I think that gives me a concern. That's why I want us to really focus on efficiency as well, not just on what is the technology. Mm. And then I think the last thing is if it's clunky, it doesn't bother me, but I'd like to get, you know, reliable and affordable technology in use. And I think that's more important than how, you know, some perfect of the days,
0: yeah.
1: absolutely. You know, so for me, we really need to focus on the problem. It's not going to be a perfect solution. And I'm one of these people. I have to say, I'd prefer that we spent our time getting 90% of the way than argue about the fact that we're not going to get there by 2050. So if we got there by 2052, I'm also very happy.
0: Yeah. So I guess to summarise most of what we've been talking about, I guess I would say you're probably a glass half full kind of person. And when you're looking at the problem and, you know, you've got an engineering mindset, so you're thinking, you know, we can fix this. This is achievable. We can do make a difference here.
1: Yeah, I think we can do it. And, you know, as I said to someone, you know, if I'm in 2050, I don't want to be the person who said, I knew we weren't going to make it as everything collapsed around that. There's no glory in that because it's all gone wrong. So there's no harm in... And using some positive thought is action here. I'm with you on and 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 actually trying to make it happen. And as I've said, is we're aiming for 2050. But if we miss 2050 and it was 2051, do I feel successful? Probably. But if it's too late, then obviously that would be a problem. But I'm not sure. So I think at the moment we can hit it. But it's more than technology, it's more than collaboration, and it's even more than a global accord. I think we're going to need some luck here in order to get that piece of disruptive technology that gives us the ladder, that gives us a a five or a 10-year boost on this journey that we didn't expect.
0: Okay, Myrtle, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come back and speak to you in about a year and maybe two years' time. (laughs) Yes. And we'll compare notes as to how things are going. But so so, so for today, I just say thank you very much. It's been fascinating Mm. to listen to you. And I wish you all the best with the efforts that we're putting in at NZTC. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for listening to Transition Talks. You can listen to all podcasts at netzotc.com forward slash podcasts or you can subscribe to get instant access to all the new episodes before they drop. See you next time.